Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. Maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am your host, Yaga Malark. Hey guys. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be getting into some more Napoleon today, of course. We're working our way, almost, almost finished with this book and getting back to Clausewitz. Uh, we're getting a new photo shoot on. That's one of the things that the editor and I are planning is to get a, a Napoleon photo shoot to replace that Clausewitz picture, considering that we're going to be doing Clausewitz a little bit longer. And we really do enjoy those photo shoots. And she does such a great job with the editing. Um, so real quick, let's address the elephant in the room. Last episode, I said, oh, we're going to be getting back to normal. The summer was crazy, but now we're getting back to a recording schedule. And you might be like, well, Malark, you haven't. It's been like a month since the last episode dropped. Like, what, what happened? I thought we were getting back to the regular recording schedule twice twice a month, every two weeks, you know? Well, I could, I could beat around the bush. I could make up some other excuse. I could tell you that I've been off doing incredible amounts of wargaming, that there's a, a good reason, work-wise here, for me to have been absent. But, dear listeners, my dear citizens... I have to be honest with you. There is one word, one word that has been taking me away from you. And that word is Starfield. <laughs> yes, I am a Bethesda nerd. When I am not playing war games of some sort, I enjoy Bethesda very much. I love Skyrim and all the Elder Scrolls games, in fact. But Skyrim is my favorite. I'm a huge Fallout player. I enjoyed even the MMOs. Fallout, you know, 76 and ESO, even though I don't understand why Fallout 76 received such bad ratings. I honestly don't. Um, but those, those are a, a love of mine. I really do enjoy Bethesda's RPGs. I think they do a great job with them. And I've been looking forward to Starfield for oh, a long time. Like, I don't remember the last time that I anticipated a, a video game so heavily. I, I don't remember the last time that a month crawled by because of the amount of uh, anticipation that I had concerning what was going on. So yeah, I, I mean, I spent the entirety of the month of August twiddling my thumbs, waiting in eager anticipation for the release of this game, which I absolutely paid for the five-day pre-access for. And I kidded myself, dear listeners, I kidded myself by saying, yes, I will be able to manage my time correctly between this wonderful new video game and a new job. I don't usually talk about that sort of personal stuff, but I, I, I have another job as well now, which is outstanding. Uh, actually doing another podcast, in fact. Uh, another academic-based podcast that I might tell you all about when it, when it comes time to do so. But yeah, I, I kidded myself by saying that I would be able to manage my time appropriately, and it is quite obvious to you, to me, to my editor, who has been glaring daggers at me this entire time, uh, that, that uh, yeah, yeah, I slipped a little bit. But I think it was for the right cause. And the right cause, of course, is constellation and the exploration of the stars. I don't know how many of you are playing this game. I don't know how many of you have eagerly anticipated it as I have. But yes, it has consumed a very good portion of my, of my waking hours at this point. So, I will be getting back on track. I don't know, I, I can't promise an exact time frame, but worry not, because I am absolutely here, I'm thinking about you, it's, it's just been hard to manage my time, and I'm sure, you, I'm sure you can appreciate that, us as war gamers, we get really focused on the stuff we do sometimes. You know, I've, I've lost 
good portions of my life to just sitting there building lists for Warhammer 40k, just just theoreticals, just ones that I, I might not never use, but I want to see how the way that a particular mechanic plays out, or I want to try a different a different style or a different approach to a battle with one of my lists. We all have done that. We've all spent hours staring at boards, wondering what we could have done, wonder, wondering what we did do correctly. Uh, maybe that's just me, <laughs> but uh, but no, I, I am a I am known to lose myself and the things that I am passionate about. And in fact, I've got a few other uh, a few other games coming up recently. I've I've had a few. In fact, you're going to hear about one on the show uh, today. Another nice game that I had with my Chaos Knights, and I've got one coming up against Eldar again, which I am not looking forward to. Would be a stressed way to say it. I think an easier and better way to say it would be that I am anticipating a, a hard game ahead of me. The, the guy who's playing them is not a, a huge player anymore. He hasn't, I, I don't think he played at all during 9th, and this is going to be his first game during 10th. But again, he's an Eldar player, so if, uh, if you all have been watching the meta, they still are very good. And of course, there's a lot of people calling for another nerf. If things are balanced-ish... Like, I don't mind one army, of course, being better than another. That's just, that's just the nature of war, you know? Certain armies, certain groups are going to be more apt than others. It doesn't mean that they're going to win all the time. But like last edition with the Gene Stealer cult, they were, they were pra- placed pretty poorly when I started playing them. But I did very well with them, because partially because we were studying Abu Bakr Naji at the time, and I was getting some pretty darn good advice from a guy who, who knows his asymmetric warfare. The crux of the matter is that we as wargamers, we as commanders, should be developing our skill set that we can give a good showing of ourselves regardless of the situation, regardless of who we're going up against. And that's what I'm trying to do. You know, the last time I went against Eldar, I, I did okay. You know, I could have done better. There was a lot of stuff that I know how I did it wrong. There was a lot of stuff that I have planned out in my head, how I want to do it differently. And so going against this other Eldar player gives me a good chance to work those things out. Uh, in other news, of course, there's a, another tournament starting up here locally. I'm hoping that I have the time to do it. Uh, you've got to get a certain number of, of fights in before the new year. And then, of course, once the new year hits, they're going to start doing bracketed play. So I need to I need to get out there and start playing some games, of course, because I, I always enjoy these tournaments. Muse puts on a Muse puts on some pretty darn, darn good t- tournaments. You know, if you're in the Missoula area, Jason is an amazing individual. Again, I don't get paid to say any of this. I just, <laughs> I just like what I like. I like who I like, and you know, Muse is just a wonderful place. Um, and a lot of you know, your local stores are like. I hope you guys are lucky enough to have a local store or a local place to do whatever wargaming that you enjoy that has a good community. Because I do. I, I'm incredibly lucky to have the community that I do here through through Muse. I, there's another um, store in town that I never frequent, not because not because of any particular reason. I didn't have any bad experiences there or anything. I just am a person that abides by brand loyalty for the most part. And so I'm, I'm a Muse man, much like I'm a Dapper Dan man. It, seriously, advertising works. But I digress. So I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to testing my, my metal again with these, with these knights. I haven't quite figured out if I want to go... Chaos Knights or Imperial Knights against him, I'm not sure. But if I do an interview with him, that'll be next episode. This episode, you know, stay tuned because Toto will be on in the second half and always love talking to him. But I think I've rambled on long enough. Let's get into our next set of Napoleonic Maxims. start with a small recap just to make sure that we are aware of where we're at this problem with doing them as infrequently as they've been coming out right now again I know it's all my problem you guys didn't do anything I'm not blaming you we, we had gone over the generals right in this last episode we went over what kind of qualities are important in different levels of command because of course what is required of a general of engineers is going to be different than is what is required of a you know cavalry general And then we talked a little bit about cavalry itself, where the power lies in cavalry, what its purpose was, not just in history, not just in in, in this particular time period of which Napoleon was writing, but also in what we do 
and making sure we manage one of our most important assets, which is our mobility, of course, which is what cavalry represents. And we ended with the idea of the siege, you know, the battle like a siege. Of course, we're, this, is, this is Napoleonic Tactics 101, 92, the one that we had just had last time. Uh, if, if there was any of these that kind of sums up the way that he typically does his tactics, this is the one. This is the one, I think. But let's continue, because we only have, yeah, only a few more of these. So either this episode or next, we'll be heading back to Clausewitz. But let's start on 93. The better the infantry is, the more it should be used carefully and supported with good batteries. Good infantry is, without a doubt, the sinew of an army. But if it is forced to fight for a long time against a very superior artillery, it will become demoralized and will be destroyed. It is possible that a general who is more skillful and a better maneuverer than his adversary, adversary, excuse me, having better infantry, will gain success during a part of the campaign, although his artillery, Park, is very inferior. But, on a decisive day in a general action, he will feel his inferiority in artillery cruelly. This harkens back to one of the, the, the points that both of these authors touched upon, which is the idea of the balance between the forces, the balance between the three separate arms or the three separate types of unit. And we, of course, have the infantry, as we discuss here, the cavalry, as we discussed previously, and artillery. Now, of these, infantry is by far the most important. The majority of any given army, and I would say that this is the same of any of the armies that we might play with or use, should be given over to infantry and infantry tactics and everything kind of revolving around that. But at this particular time in, in our history, in, in, in the world's history, artillery was king. You know, you could have all the best infantry in the world, but if they're getting pounded to smithereens by artillery, they're not going to do as well. Look at World War I and the demoralization that occurred on all sides there and how it affected combat efficiency. It, it was horrible. It was horrible just to endure constant shelling, constant artillery, day after day after day, living in those trenches in some of the worst conditions that have been seen in warfare. So, good infantry is, like he says, without a doubt, the background, but we have to treat it well. Just because our infantry is good, just because it is strong, doesn't mean that it should be wasted. Doesn't mean that it is a cheap thing to be bartered away for nothing. A good infantry should be used exactly as they are, which is to say, well. So, this is, a, this is good advice. Because again, if, we're, if we are allowing our best thing to en <laughs> endure the worst constantly, it will no longer be our best thing anymore. And that's bad. That's a, that's a bad thing. Moving on. Number 34. A good army of 35,000 men should in a few days, especially when supported by a fortress or large river, make its camp unassailable by an army double in force. That's the trick, isn't it? This, the, the, the trick is to make sure that we can take on whatever we need to from our camp, because that's when we're the most vulnerable, of course, is when we are in camp, when we're in Biovac. The number of times throughout history when an army was defeated without a sword in anyone's hand, without a musket being fired on the side of the defender because they were all caught unawares. Camping, Battle of the Wilderness. In the American Civil War is a great example. They moved up on a flank where they were not expected and the Confederates took almost an entire uh, area of the field by surprise. It was well maneuvered, well executed, and depended on their opponent being caught unawares. And this, this is kind of that same idea. We want to make sure that we are unassailable. And how do we do that? Well, large rivers are great. Like you said, we have to have some sort of natural barrier. Just like when we are on the field and we want to anchor one of our flanks against something solid, whether it is a mountain range, a fortress, a river, impassable marshes, not the Ardennes. We've already learned our lessons about that. Then we need to do that. But we also need to think about the same thing when we are camping. It is easy to think that we want to have an open camp, something that is easily gotten to, and gotten out from, because you think, oh, well, we need to be able to use that maneuverability. But the fact of the matter is, the enemy will already have the advantage if they are attacking our camp in some way because they have the element of surprise. And of course, surprise is 
top two most important things when we're talking military science, tactics, and strategy. So how do we mitigate that? Well, we narrow the field. We narrow the amount of, of area that the enemy can come at us from. So by creating that narrow front or eliminating certain fronts, like having a river at our back, like he says, or a, a fortress right there that can support us, well, then we are having an entire area that we don't need to worry about as much. And we can prep for them in one general direction. And the defense has the superior. We've discussed that at many different authors at this point. The defense is the superior of these two modes. And so if we can fortify ourselves in such a way with nice trench works or earthworks or other works <laughs> of some sort to make our numbers count, right? To, to take away the advantage of our opponent's numbers and make whatever numbers we have count more. Well, that's what we kind of need to go for. So it is easy to assume that camping is not nearly as important as the others. But I, you know, I use this when, when we're camping too. You know, Bellegarth events are, are all fine and dandy. Most people, most, I would say 99.9% .9 of the people who are attending are good people. Sometimes awkward, <laughs> but we're all nerds. We understand that part. But unfortunately, just like with any group, there are bad eggs. There are people who you don't want to be in your camp unawares. I've been to events where folks have had things stolen right out of their tents. Now, this has never happened to me, thankfully. I'm, I'm very thankful that I've never had that happen, but I've known several people who left their camp unawares and had something taken out of their camp or taken out of their tent. And this is unfortunate, of course, because it creates a bad, a bad feeling for one. But in all these cases, that I know of. The camps were very open. They were in a very general, more public area. There wasn't a whole lot of control over who came and who went, and there wasn't a whole lot of control on where they came or went from. One of the things I very much enjoy about camping with my Dark Angel brethren is that we set up walls. Now, they're not like wall walls, because of course we're at a temporary uh, event at a temporary site. We don't necessarily want to be erecting palisades going on there, it's not quite that extreme. But we put up tarps and ropes and we say, look, there, this is the way you get in and out. Anybody who is coming in and out without using that area, one is gonna have a heck of a time because we put up a pretty good barrier. They're gonna make noise. And two, they're not gonna be allowed in. And so this way, by having this kind of front gate idea, we are able to control who comes and who goes from our particular camp. And this is our way of defending. And when I've been camping with my brethren, we don't have that issue. I've never heard of anything being stolen from Dark Angel Camp because we very, very closely monitor who's coming and where they're coming from. Now, granted, we're not trying to fight off an invasion, but it's kind of the same idea, making sure that we are protected from the eventualities that might occur. Let's go to number 95 now. War is composed of nothing but accidents, and although holding to general principles, a general should never lose sight of everything to enable him to profit from these accidents. That is the mark of genius. In war there is but one favorable moment. The great art is to seize it. We've talked before about the decisive moment, the part in a battle which wins part of the battle which decides the way the rest of things are going to go. Of course, everything builds up to this moment. All these happy accidents, all these minor skirmishes and combats lead to this one pinnacle moment that can define the rest of that battle. And Napoleon's absolutely right. The pinnacle of genius, the pinnacle of what we try to do is to master that chaos. We have said it time and time again. Every plan is perfect until it meets the enemy. We have to plan for that. I know that seems like a, an oxymoronic statement. How do you plan for a lack of plan? Well, training, for one thing, making sure that we're prepared to take on whatever situation the battle or life may throw at us, but also recognizing and going into it with a clear and sober mind, knowing that our plans will change, that the circumstances will change, and that accidents will occur on both sides, and that what we need to do is not go after perfection, not go after the absolute best because we know it is not attainable, but look at the way these accidents come together and try to make the best of the situation. A good general, a genius general, knows how to roll with the punches. 
knows how to keep their cool in the light of stress, in the light of disappointment in what's going on. And who can look at a situation with open eyes, that kudel, and see what's going on and see where you need to move and when you need to know there. And this takes experience. There's a reason that the best generals in history are typically not fresh graduates from a military academy. They are somebody who's had experience, somebody who's seen it before, somebody who understands the nature of timing, the nature of seeing clearly. In war, there is but one favorable moment. The great art is to seize it. You'll hear in my game with Toto about such a great moment. I know I cheated. I recorded that before I recorded this. But <laughs> it's, it's nice because it kind of set this up, right? One favorable moment. We have to watch for it. All right, 96. A general who retains fresh troops for the day after the battle is almost always beaten. He should, if helpful, throw in his last man, because on the day after the complete success there are no more obstacles in front of him. Prestige alone will ensure new triumphs to the conqueror. Well, this goes back to his overall philosophy, which is not wasting a single person, not wasting a single fire, not, uh, uh, not wasting a single shot that could be fired from a musket. Now, again, we're not saying do a headlong charge with absolutely everything we have, a, a reckless commitment of all of our forces to any given operation. Anytime we've got things in an active reserve, which is to say not just sitting around waiting for supper, but folks who are sitting there at the ready to head off any flanking attacks, support, uh, to, to fill in any gaps that might occur. This is not retaining fresh troops. Our fresh troops are the ones who, again, are sitting in Biovac. They're not the ones who are going to be used. And so if we are really fighting, if we are sitting here and we're wanting to win, we need to be able to commit all of our assets in some way or another. Think about a unit battle. If you've ever done anything like Belagarth and you know about these teams, you'll know that there are stuff like realm battles and unit battles where our smaller factions are able to you know, beat each other up trying to prove their superiority and, and martial prowess. Now, there are, of course, people who don't show up for a unit battle, right? So they, they declare, unit battle, and everybody's going back and getting their stuff. And when I first joined the Urukai back in the day, back when it was at its absolute height, it was one of those things that if you were in, and they called unit battles, unless you were sitting there nursing a broken leg or, or some other thing, you were out there. It was a requirement to be on the field. Like people come back to camp and be like, hey, we got to get out there. And one of the reasons that the Urukai did so well in those early years was because they had no fresh troops waiting at their camp. Nobody was in recline. Nobody was in Biovac. Everybody was deployed. And even though there may have been better skilled players on some of the other teams, the Urukai won because they brought everyone out. They made sure that every part of their force was dedicated to what was going on at hand. I've seen other forces that were ab absolutely outstanding. You can see an army, you can see a unit that if they were all out on the field because of their numbers or because of their skill, that would have had no problem winning. But maybe some of their, those members are a little older and they wanted to stay in camp because they didn't want to go on the field. And maybe some of them are a different kind of social. Maybe they wanted to go off and be with their friends or do something else that, that was not on the field. And that force was then weakened. So, I mean, obviously, we're there to have a good time. We're there to, you know, see our friends and be able to have these other experiences. But if we want to be able to perform well, if we want to make sure that we are putting our absolute best foot forward, that starts with making sure that we have every body available, every single boot on the ground that we possibly can have. Because once we do that, once we have gotten rid of those obstacles, then we can rest. Then we can sit down and, and have fun with our friends. Then we can sit there and nurse our old bodies. Yes, other old people, I see you. Uh, uh, the, the old in me recognizes the old in you. But this is the point. Now, there's a many, many, many units that are not that competitive. And I'm not speaking to you. Go and have your fun. Go and hang out with your friends. Please. I'm, not, I'm honestly <laughs> not looking down upon you. But if... If we are, are our most important priority is victory, if our most important priority is to see our name on the winner's boards or whatever, 
then we need to show up. That's that's rule number one. <laughs> Got to be there. I mean, it's the same thing with something like 40K. Keeping units in the back, keeping units that never do anything on the board is a waste of points. I've had it before that I've had particular units out there that literally did nothing. They weren't objective holders. They weren't flankers or skirmishers. They just were either poorly placed or poorly used. But it ended up being two or 400 points on the board that was useless to me. Think if I had just put something else in that place or used them differently in order to bring all of those guns, all of those blades to bear. Well, that's the point. That's the best usage of those points. The best usage of those models on the board is to make sure that they are, in fact, used. Now, some units, like cultists or something along those lines, which are small and weak, of course, their point is to hold the back line. Their point is to be there, but they're an active reserve. They are doing a job. They just aren't, they're not just back there twiddling their thumbs. They're making sure that they hold that back objective or that my opponent can't jump in behind me or something along those lines. But to make sure that when we look at our list, when we look at our army, that there is no wasted space, that there is, we can use everything out there to its full degree because you, we have to assume that our opponent will. We have to assume that if we're fighting on the field, their opponent is going to have every body they can out there. We have to assume that if we're on the tabletop, our opponent will know how to use all of their units and will bring them to bear in the most efficient manner possible. We have to do the same if we intend to keep up. Moving on. 97. The rules of fighting require that a part of an army should avoid fighting alone against an entire army that has already been successful. There is a saying that we have. In Belagarth. I know that we use it in Stygia. I've heard it in other places. Don't die alone. This is a statement that is often uttered to newer fighters who get distracted. They get blinders on. They see the opponent in front of them and they get focused. They start to dig in their heels or walk back in a certain manner thinking to themselves how they're going to manage it. Not thinking of where they are in relation to the rest of their team. Not thinking where the rest of their support is. And then you have somebody who's already a newer player who has now been singled out by a larger force. They're done. They died alone. Same thing has happened in 40K for me. I've had something that was kind of off on its own, something that was away from the support of the rest of my army that then had, that then got turned on. And that local numeric superiority took them out. It doesn't matter if we're new, it doesn't matter if we're old. Local numeric superiority is an important thing to pay attention to. And so that's a common thing that we say, don't die alone. I would give you the same advice. Don't die alone. Make sure that you're near your friends. Make sure that we are working together as a team because without that, we can be singled out. Without that, we can be taken down wolf-packed by a team that is more cohesive, by a team that does operate better together and uses better teamwork. We want to be that team, the one that is better in this particular regard. 98. When a general has laid siege to a place by surprise, and has gained a few days on his adversary, he should profit from this by covering himself with lines of circumvallation. From this movement he will have improved his position, he will have acquired a new element of power and a new degree of force in the general framework of affairs. We had talked about this before, these ideas of circumvallation and contravallation. And these are really just the trenches, or the battle lines that are drawn, facing directly towards and away from the target of a siege. Now the ones pointing towards our target make sense, of course. But the ones pointing away from our target, the ones that we use to protect ourselves, are almost just as important. Remember Caesar, how he was able to survive an onslaught because of this particular technique. I don't know if he was the first to use it, but he certainly <laughs> went down in history for it. And it's the same thing here. Napoleon's looking back and looking exactly at Caesar when we look at this and saying, all right, just because we're in a position of superiority doesn't mean we get to rest on our laurels. We need to improve our position. We need to make sure that our position is now impregnable, or at least as much as it can be, to prepare for what comes next. To prepare for the eventuality of either our opponent attempting a breakout from the siege or a relief army approaching from hopefully not our flanks or rear. So, covering ourselves with lines of circumvallation is important. 
like he says, it improves our position and makes sure that we have this this other element of safety, this other element of power to run up against our opponents. And we don't talk too much about sieges because it's rare that we actually will find ourselves in one on this show. 99. In war, the commander of a fortress is not a judge of events. He should defend the fortress to the last. He deserves death if he surrenders it a moment before he is forced to. Well, these fortresses are important. They are designed to last. They are designed to break a siege. And they're valuable. And we're talking about things that took a long time to build, that take a lot of effort to maintain, and that serve a very specific strategic function. If a person is in put, put in command of a fortress, well, that, is, that is a sign of trust. That is a sign of the stalwartness that is assumed by the commander. You do not put somebody who is incompetent in charge of fortresses, particularly fortresses that are near the front lines. We want people who are competent, making sure that they are there. But they are not a judge of the events. From inside the fortress, things can seem a lot scarier than they actually are. If you have an army that has encircled us, right? If we're, if we're sitting there looking out at a bunch of campfires, it can be a little intimidating. But we don't know what's going on beyond that. We don't know where the relief forces might be. We don't know that they might be starving and that this might be a bluff, that they're trying to just get us to surrender and then be like, oh, by the way, we were about to break the siege anyways because we can't eat. We don't know. We cannot be a judge of an event based on what we can see from inside a fortress without outside knowledge. Now, again, now, when we look at it, we've got radios and walkie-talkies and satellite phones and other things to keep in touch. A fortress commander is not blind by any means anymore. But back in the time when this was written, unless you had a very, very, very good homing pigeon program, for the most part, a fortress isn't going to know. The commander and the garrison of a fortress will not know what's going on outside. And so it is only when the enemy is inside the gates, only when the enemy has broken the walls and the will of the people inside, that a general, or a commander, rather, should consider surrendering. When it, when it is completely pointless to continue fighting on when it would just result in the pointless deaths of men and material, then... It is time to secede, but not a moment before. Not a moment before, because fortresses are important. Losing just one is a massive blow to any war effort. And Napoleon knew, knew this. 100. Entering the home stretch now. I think there's only 115 in here, which means probably one more episode at least. Yeah, there's 115 in here. But we're getting there. We are getting there. 100. Agreements to surrender, made by surrounded bodies, either during a battle or during an active campaign, are contracts with all the advantageous clauses in favor of the individuals who contract them, and all the onerous clauses against the prince and the other soldiers of the army, to avoid peril oneself while making the position of the rest more dangerous, is an act of cowardice. What I think they're saying here, because the language is a little hard for me to parse through, is kind of what was talking about what we see in terms of armistices. If we look at, for instance, World War I, which of course hadn't happened yet at the time of this writing, but I think is a good example, at the end of World War I, because Germany was in such an imperiled position, the Allied forces were able to make the most ridiculous demands, were able to put in the most punitive measures restitution and whatnot that Germany had to pay back. It already had a broken economy, and yet it was being told that it had to be had to pay even more, that it couldn't have a standing army, which means it couldn't defend itself. Like, there were a lot of rules that were put into place because Germany had no way to navigate that particular conversation. They had no way to support themselves. And I think that's kind of what it's saying. I look at it again, I'm like, I'm not sure if that's quite what it's saying. So if, you, if you're looking at this and you're like, oh, it's obvious to me, please drop me a line and say, hey, uh, this is what 100 means. Because I'm looking at it and I'm like, I don't really understand this one. That's the best I can come up with, though, is the idea that, uh, of course, if we're, if we're on the ropes, then whatever surrender is made is going to be absolutely, massively benefiting the person who is calling the surrender. 101. Defensive war does not exclude attacking. 
just as offensive war does not exclude defending, although its aim may be to force the frontier and to invade an enemy's country. This is what Clausewitz has talked about, too. I know it seems like an eternity ago since we actually talked about Clausewitz. But he has talked about, of course, the transition. The transition between offensive and defensive warfare. And how this can be a very difficult uh, and very uh, hazardous time for an army is moving between these two modes. But just because we are a defensive army does not mean we do not push back. Does not mean that we do not occasionally go on a campaign to wreck an opponent's supply depot or cut off a line of retreat. Overall, we may say, I want to defend my country, but that doesn't mean we just have to take the blows and walk backwards. There have been many cases that where the defender of a particular war has managed to maneuver in such a way that while still being defensive, they were able to get a jump. Think of Frederick the Great, for instance, when he was defending Prussia against all enemies all around him. It wasn't that he just was completely defensive. He moved against armies, cut them off, cut them off from each other. And so in this, in this action, he managed to defend himself. And if we're just attacking, if we're just moving in and attacking a place without worrying about defending where we might have already conquered, you know, the keeps and the fortresses and the towns and the rivers and the bridges that have led us to this point that we have had to fight very hard for, well, then uh, we're being kind of sloppy. Uh, it calls to mind the current war in the Ukraine. Of course, the Ukrainians are on the defensive overall. They're trying to defend their, their home country. But recently the uh, town of Bakhmut had been taken by the Russians. Well, during the counteroffensive by the Ukrainians, even more recently, they managed to take back Bakhmut and the surrounding areas, now using it to push forward. And what this shows, of course, is that even though the Ukrainians are technically on the defensive, an offensive, quote-unquote, campaign in order to retake land still qualifies as being defensive because they're defending their land. And much like Russia, when they're moving forward and they were on the offensive, yes, they're the offending army, but like right now, they're on the defensive because there's that pushback, that counteroffensive coming from the Ukrainians. And so even though one is technically the aggressor and one is the defender, they still do both. Both roles still do both things, I suppose. All right, one more and then we'll stop for today. Number 102. The art of war indicates that it is necessary to turn or envelop a wing without separating the army. Well, this kind of harkens back to one of the other ones we said, don't die alone, right? How do we get that flank without making that part completely out of support, out of the way of being able to be supported by the main force? How are we able to envelop our opponent without weakening our own position and, and weakening ourselves to a breakout? You know, if we if we thin our lines entirely too much, our opponent can just punch through somewhere. I've seen it happen all the time in Bell, where you have one force that is surrounded, and they they have a desperate breakout and they punch through because you know the, their opponent line is only one, maybe two people thick. So there's a trick to it, of course. And the more we practice, the better we get at it. But making sure that whoever is flanking, whoever is going around trying to turn the opponent's flank is still supported by the main force, is still within range to be protected, in some part, by the main body, so that we don't have people going out there and dying alone. I've seen many people who think that they're good flankers go running off their own only to die and leave their team down a body. Every body counts. Every blade counts. Every bullet counts. So in this particular way, we need to turn and envelop wings. Of course, that's, that's one of the ways we win battles. One of the ways that we quickly destroy the enemy is by going down their back line. But to get there, we need to make sure that we are not making ourselves overly vulnerable in the process. We don't want to overreach, as it were. Well, I think that that is enough of the book learning for today. I appreciate you all and your patience and, and, and these getting out. And uh, I think that it is time to move on to a nice little game with Toto. And here with us today is my good buddy Toto and friend of the show. Thank you for coming back on, sir. Of course. Good afternoon, listeners. How are you today, Malark? Oh, I'm doing just great. I get to play a game against a good buddy, so the day is already starting out well. Um, so yeah, we're doing a game of Warhammer today, doing 2,000 points. His Grey Knights versus my Chaos Knights. You'll you'll know that this is 
one of my, I'm still in the single digits with my games with Chaos Knights, but I'm very, very much enjoying them. Go ahead. Uh, this is right after the points update. This is. And, and the data slate and everything. And Correct, so the September gonna, patch. Yeah. Um, so my army wasn't really affected by it. I was already right. playing the Bondsmill Billies the way they were. Um, I like the towering change. You know, it, it, I think it, it solved a lot of the fairness issue of mm -hmm. some of the other stuff. And I think so, too. Points cost didn't really affect me. How about you? Like, did it... Um, there were... There, so I play Custodes and Grey Knights, uh, as most listeners probably know. Custodes got hit pretty hard. They were doing pretty darn well. They had a 55% tournament win rate uh, in a world where Eldari and GSC have upwards of 60%, 70% yeah, win rates. Yeah, gross. Uh, and that's, like, being that strong with that oppressive... Uh, enemies it means you're probably a bit overtuned mm -hmm. so i think custodies justifiably got hit pretty hard the fights first they had too much access to it mm -hmm. and it was very potent with a 10-man brick of sure. guard because that's 50 attacks and i don't care if you're a chaos knight or whatever 50 attacks from a custody is 50 from attacks from a custodian yeah, yeah that's pretty it's pretty pretty substantial so they got brought down to squads of five which is um i think a pretty pretty well-deserved nerf they also did a small points hike on the best performing custodies units. Um, I think they're probably not going to be a tier one or even a tier two army nope. at this juncture, but may maybe tier two, maybe low tier two, high tier three, I think is where they'll probably sit. I was going to say, I've yet to be an addition where they weren't, you know, pretty high pretty tier. Pretty strong, absolutely. Know. Yeah, And I think, I think they're still going to do what they did uh, very well, which is bully other infantry lists. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think that's, they're going to maintain what they do well at. They're just not going to excel quite so hard at it. And I think that's a really nice way to adjust the army. Sure. Uh, Grey Knights, unfortunately, were in a much worse place than Custodes. And they have extremely powerful map control. Um, and they were overcosted because of their movement abilities. Right. Um, the entire army gets access to it. So everything in the army costs a bit more than your average Space Marine or Terminator or what have you. Um, they they knocked the points down a bunch, but unfortunately, Grey Knights still have very little access to our anti-tank. Mm -hmm. The primary anti-tank gun has AP of negative one, which, if you have ever shot at a tank, you know that's probably not the best <laughs> AP to have. Yeah. Um, I, I was reading a very interesting, sorry, I'm rambling here, very interesting math hammer. Uh, I've just watched about, him have like a thermos and a half of coffee, which yeah. is where this is coming from. Yeah, you know it. Um, a, someone did Math Hammer on uh, Psy Cannons, the Grey Knight's anti-tank weapon. Mm -hmm. I'm doing air quotes for, for those of you at home. Um, versus a pre-nerf Tyranifex. If you took 28 Psy Cannons, not 28 shots, 28 Psy Cannons, 28 models with an anti-tank gun, mm -hmm. and shot them all at a Tyranifex. In one phase. Which has a toughness of? 12. Mm -hmm. And uh, also has one damage reduction was mm -hmm. the important thing. That no longer happens. Oh, okay. They no longer have that one DR. So it's more in line with a knight or something like that. But sure. uh, it was estimated to be about two damage that mm -hmm. you would deal to a Tyranifex with 28 anti-tank models really? firing everything into a Tyranifex. That's silly. Two damage into, silly. into a pretty standard T12 tank profile. Sure. There's a lot of tanks with T12. And, My guy is T12. Yep, and a lot of stratagems to reduce damage, that sort of thing. Right. Um, but, you know, Grey Knights, their anti-tank is suffering, but they've got access to some mortal wounds. You're just going to have to gamble with librarians because sometimes you roll some ones and you die. Right. Um, and towering, the towering, uh, quote-unquote, nerf is huge right. for you because it now is. you're able to move around the field without my dudes being like, well, that over there is dead before it even gets within range to, to do anything Exactly. Useful. Yeah, no, it was uh, the towering, the, the full visibility was definitely tough for Grey Knights to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really hoping that my lethal hits can do some good work in this matchup, and uh, I've brought a, a chaplain along for the first time. Mm. He gives plus one to wound, which is helpful against big, stompy targets. Yeah. Uh, and then I've also got, this is my second game taking a Nemesis Dread Knight in 10th edition. And I've played a couple games of 10th edition with Grey Knights. And they were um, like an auto-take last time. Oh, edition. yeah. Oh, I had three in every list. Yeah. Uh, Grandmaster and at least two, two Dread Knights, um, if I could. But, uh, yeah, I played one game with them, and then I remember vividly, turn three, I drop a Dread Knight down. My opponent's like, oh, actually, I'm going to Overwatch you. And then my Dread Knight just dies to an Overwatch. And I was like, why would I ever <laughs> do that again? pay 220 points <laughs> to oh. get killed for a command point? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't. But their big points decrease. And the, the Grandmaster, even though he's a Grandmaster, still hits on threes and fours yeah. with, his, with his hammer. Sure. Um, 
but uh, he does have some anti-tank capabilities. So that's kind of everything else pretty standard Terminator, Librarian, Kaldor. If you, if you know a Grey Knight's competitive list right now, it's pretty cookie cutter, except for the addition of the Dread Knight and the Chaplain. Yeah, I'm looking forward uh, to seeing that. I don't think I've gone against the Chaplain at all this edition. Uh, yeah, but perhaps not. I don't think they're in the strongest point, but they were 100 points and now they're down to 75, or maybe they were 90 and now they're down to 75. Gotcha. And I was thinking that 15 points, that's a pretty good decrease to give your whole unit plus one to wound mm -hmm. uh, after lethal hits from charge. No so, doubt. Oh, yeah. So hopefully I should be able to punch upwards. That's my. This whole list is made to make the Grey Knights punch up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of, I knew I was playing knights. So I, obviously I wasn't going to run a bunch of anti-infantry or anything like right. that. Um, because then I would just, I would simply die. And that would be no fun. That's no fun, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I'm hoping this will be a nice all-comer list that is also capable of punching up against things like custodies and knights. So uh, let's, let's get right into it. But before we do, uh, let's hear about your list. What's going on over on your side of the table? Fantastic. So I have brought, as we discussed prior, uh, 2,000 points of Grey Knights today. Uh, I've got a Chaplain, again, my first time utilizing this particular model. Uh, should be quite fun. It will help me punch upwards against your big tanky boys. I've got two Librarians to just kind of try and deal some direct damage to you. A Grand Master and Nemesis Dread Knight, who he might get shot off the board turn one. He might kill a knight. I'm flipping a coin. We'll find out. And then I've got uh, Kaldor Drago for his nice six-inch charge out of Deep Strike. Mm. Uh, backing up those characters is four squads of Terminators, which uh, all have an Apothecary to start resing models each, each round. Nice. As well as two squads of Strikes, just for some nice objective control. They oh, yeah. have a pre-game move and sticky objectives. And then, just as a little bit of... Uh, you know, insurance. I've got a great nice Land Raider. It's going to hang out in the back. It's going to fire some Laz Cannon shots, or maybe I'll put some guys in it and move it up the center board to get one shot by a knight again. <laughs> we'll I, see. <laughs> I, you know, with the t with the new no towering rules, I can't just touch you from it's, across it's the true. board. So, it's true, which will unless, be quite nice. Unless you're like, I'm going to set it right in the open, where you can easily hit me with your lack of ranged weapons. I've done that before, <clears throat> so we'll see what happens. <laughs> Uh, so who's your warlord again? My warlord is Kaldor Drago. Uh, he yeah. must be the warlord if he's included gotcha. in a Grey Knight's list. He's the he's the guy. Did you throw any enhancements on this uh, list? I or? sure did. I've got uh, the Sigil of Exigence, which Malark knows quite well I do know. at this juncture, yeah. on a Brotherhood Librarian. I have Inescapable Wrath on my Chaplain, which gives me a plus one to charge. And here's the thing. There's a Grey Knight's enhancement, uh, the, 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 de the Demon Book. That gives solely the model plus one to wound, which is a bit of a bummer. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're going to put it on a Grandmaster and Nemesis Dread Knight, pretty good with a hammer. Sure. So hopefully, I shouldn't be. I, every hit should wound with this guy. That's that's mm -hmm. kind of the hope. I've got a big old strength fourteen hammer on there. Yeah. Yep, he'll yep. be wounding on twos with the book. Yeah. And I get to reroll once per battle round. That's pretty so, sweet. So every single thing. So fingers crossed. Hit it, hitting you with the hammer. It's going to be a lot harder than hurting you with the hammer. It's and a that's, strong list. It, it is. And that's, uh, hopefully I'll be blinking around and infuriating you today. <laughs> well, you normally do. Uh, across the board from you over here, I've got my Chaos Knights, the uh, um, Traitorous Lance Detachment. I've got five characters in this bad boy. Indeed. Because uh, of the, the way that the rules are for the Stalkers. But I've got a Knight Abominant, two Knight Rampagers, two Knights uh, um, War Dog Stalkers, mm -hmm. and then three War Dog Carnivores. My warlord is going to be one of the night stalkers, oh, actually, one of, the, one of the little war one dogs. One of the armagers, huh? Indeed. And um, he's got the aura of terror, mm -hmm. and that gives him sticky objective as well. So he can move oh, around and kind of nice. grab stuff, and it puts their aura on that objective suit. So oh, nice. the 12-inch, like, you're the so scared shock of me. Spooky, yeah. spooky boys. So he can leave it on which the things. got buffed <clears throat> in this patch. Oh. Battleshock. Uh, Insane Bravery got nerfed, which is nice. a buff to Battleshock. Right, right, right. Um, and I think I think that was it, but I'll look up before the game starts. Anyways, sure. please continue. Uh, the other enhancement I have on it is the Panoply of the Dread Knight, which is on the Knight Abominant, and that's the reduction in AP by one. So okay. <laughs> you'll just love that. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's who I got over there. Nice and easy. That's who you got right here. And dear listeners, the next time you hear from us, we'll, we'll have concluded this great epic battle. The next time you hear from us, one of us will be very salty. It's going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> and we are back after a resounding victory on Toto's part. You got yourself a nice little 
little victory there, 75 the, points. The, 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 the points tell a different story than the actual battle, I think. <laughs> I think that there were some... There, there was a big swing in the mid-game, and it could have gone either way right there. So It's very true. And, and in, a, in these games, just like in real war, there's often a critical moment. A, a crucial time in which the battle can swing one way or the other. And you know, the, the commanders may perceive it or not, or they may look back and perceive it, or historians may look back and be like, this was the moment. And we had a couple of those. Absolutely. In this particular game. Um, you know, I think one of them happened even first, first turn there. I, w- I would agree with that. I, uh, I went a little whole hog. Um, um, things to know are that the Chaos Knights had first turn. Yep. Um, because of that... At the end of his turn, I was able to redeploy three of my units um, from Deep Strike. And uh, my Warlord is able to make a short charge out of Deep Strike. Uh, and I looked at his big scary abominant and I said, no sir, not today. Mm-hmm. And I dropped him down and I got the six inch charge and had to uh, focus some fire with some Librarian Mortal Wounds and some other shooting. And thank goodness oh, I had cleared that abominant off the board before turn two. Uh, it was it was very narrow. I think it was down to like one or two saves. Yeah. But uh, but it made it off, and that was really helped me in the midboard mm-hmm. early game. Um, and then me drawing tempting target, I actually picked the center of the battlefield. Right. Um, and I did this so that you would move away from the corner, mm-hmm. allowing me to do my movement shenanigans with gray knights yeah, and. Yeah. Kick that objective. Oh, we should go over our uh, the mission, the primary. Yeah, yeah. Um, we got sweeping engagement yep. for our deployment zone. Um, deploy servo skulls for the primary mission and the the sweep and clear sticky objectives yep. for the mission secondary. Yep. Um, so we were kicking those midfield objectives like soccer ball, another one of Malark's favorite sports. <laughs> um, and it was just back and forth all game. But I really wanted to bring him to the center of the board because of that, so that I could move a chaff unit out there and just start booting that thing into his deployment zone. Well, you had an excellent uh, string of tactical secondaries, too. I and did. You were getting stuff that you were able to, to score fairly um, consistently. Absolutely, and that is one of the benefits of Grey Knights, is that their their ability to zip-zap-zoop across the board really allows them to pick up things like behind enemy lines, yeah. engage on all fronts, that sort of thing. Um, and so I definitely tried very hard to stay on top of pursuing those secondaries because primaries can be a lot tougher for me to hold sure um as some of his rampager charges (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i mean again like the the fact that you had that mobility and you had more units meant that especially once we started mid-game controlling those objectives and moving them i just i just couldn't you couldn't because the the fight was in the midboard right yeah everything i was drawing was Mm midboard everything that you were telling me to do was midboard and my dudes were just not fast enough or or um, numerous enough Absolutely. to cover that kind of uh, kind of thing. So I think that you made really good use of the rules for the primary mission, played it to your strengths. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, the, the score reflects that, like just the fact that you you zoned in on good secondaries, good primaries. Absolutely. Um, and of course, there were a few clutch moments. We we've been talking about that five inch charge. <laughs> there was there was a rampager that uh, had his sights on a, a small unit of terminators that he wanted to chop up real good. He was a mere five inches away from them, and the dice came up a three with no yep. command points on deck. Yep. It's hard to sometimes those heartbreaking charges just happen, and uh, I think that may have been the biggest. If you had been able to to murder late that unit of terminators. Um, it would have been a lot harder for me to clean up the middle of the board and then descend upon your rampager, um, which is what wound up happening. Right. Um, so it was it was definitely a crucial moment. Absolutely. That five-inch failed charge, neither of us were expecting it. We were talking. We were joking. Malark casually rolls the dice, and then we both kind of just stopped and looked down. <gasps> oh, one of them, huh? So, yeah. but the every fight was close. Oh, yeah. There wasn't a single, like, this unit walks over that unit that happened. I deposited poor Kaldor Drago into the corner of Malark's board, and there he sat until turn four, just chopping on mech legs. And, and he just kept getting hit with the doom and gloom, like the, 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 the aura of terror thing that I have going on. And so I couldn't use strats on him. Yep. I couldn't, I couldn't miss the Deimos. Right. Um... Yep. So yeah, it was definitely um, a hard-fought battle. Came down to a couple of crucial rolls, mm-hmm. for sure. But it was a lot of fun. I mean, the the composition you had made it so that you were able to soak a whole mm-hmm. lot of stuff. Absolutely. I, I went with a very Terminator forward list, which is kind of the the vogue with Grey Knights right now. 
The nice thing about the, the buffs to our points is that I can take 20 Terminators and a couple of strikes. Sure. Right? And then I had a Land Raider just as a shooting platform trying to deal some damage to his big knights, which had mixed results, but yeah. uh, did did deal the damage when it had to. It so, um, I was I was quite pleased. It was it was definitely the first time using a chaplain, and he was able to punch above his weight class, oh, yeah. which was very nice. And I think that even if he was with the with the Grey Knights, only have one melee weapon, and that's a strength of six. Mm -hmm. uh, that means that I'll be wounding Space Marines on twos with the chaplain unit. And I get to wound some of the toughest things in the game on fives. So I think having him in there just to kind of give the Grey Knights that melee power they need is uh, not a bad idea to any Grey Knights players out there listening. No, yeah. It, it gives that staying power. It gives the ability to really hold your own in the in the combat mm -hmm. and, and make some stuff happen Absolutely. in a big way. Um, you know, part of part of what you what happened as well tactically was that because everything was in the center of the field, I ended up overextending myself. Absolutely. You know, I, I had this kind of wonderful little line that was moving forward. I, I had a lot of good plans, and then suddenly all these points that I needed were in the center, and so I had to pull from other areas and and push forward because you you had a um, a dread knight. That was I did have a dread knight, and he got kind of murdered on my turn too. Because <laughs> I did not want him attacking me. Understandable. Like, he's, he had, he, had some he didn't deal any damage this game. He just got damage dealt to him. Him and the abominant both. Yeah, <laughs> uh, true. Very true. Very true. <laughs> but no, and, and so that was that was a bit of a blunder. I don't know if it would have been better or worse to leave him alive and keep my dudes a little bit closer together. I'm honestly not sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it it definitely gave me a little bit of board control. But yeah, the ability to move the objectives was, again, huge for you because there, there was a couple of times where you were like, okay, I'm going to move it behind this choke point right. where you have to get through me in order to be able to score this. That was brilliant. Thank that you. Was, that was really good placement to that. Thank you. Yeah, I think the that the deploy servo skulls was heavily in favor of Grey Knights hmm. this game. Just as a card, if this matchup ever happens, it has to be, especially with the sticky objectives. Sure. Because then I can just start kicking it without, and as long as you can't run across the battlefield and stand on top of it, mm -hmm. I don't have to have anyone on top of it to kick it. It's mine. I control it. I just get to boop, boop, boop. Mm -hmm. And then those things are 15 points towards the end of the game if they're in your deployment zone, which is a third of a max for mm -hmm. primary, which is not insubstantial. No, yeah. I mean, if, if there wasn't a max on primary, you would have scored well past it. Certainly. Well past it. Certainly. Those, it's, it's a very high-scoring mission, I feel. The, the, the cumulative nature of the objectives is pretty crazy if you're able to get it there mm -hmm. for sure if we just mm -hmm. fought back and forth in the middle like that's one thing but like being able to score boom right in there was i mean it was huge so oh. i mean well played very well played. very well played very good game and one last thing i definitely want to touch on for sure from me is that we were misplaying servo skulls as well oh, yeah. we were only moving the servo skulls at the end of the controlling player's turn uh, but the, the mission, as written, is that whoever controls it at the end of each player's turn gets to bump it. Right. Um, we were not playing that way. We realized our blunder turn three and just continued playing it out in the name of fairness sure. uh, the way we had begun. So, another hot tip for anyone out there trying to play deploy servo skulls. Indeed. Well, I look forward to our next matchup. I really think that the data slate alteration made this matchup a lot more fun. I think, absolutely. I had a lot more fun. I wasn't scared of my land raider just getting deletoed from across the field turn one, like what happened last time with sure. your Volkite Cannon <laughs> Volcano Launcher, Pablami, whatever the name is. Uh, Volcano Lance Delicious. That's the one. Uh, it was. I was crying many salty tears that day. <laughs> uh, and I was not today, which was better for me, so I had more fun. Bada boom, bada bing. No, and I, I had a good time. Learned Again, I'm... I'm still, I consider, new to Chaos Knights. Absolutely. And I'm learning a lot about their mechanics and kind of what makes them tick. Because um, it is different. It's very different yeah. from Imperial Knights. You wouldn't think it would be, but... Uh, I know that you you are definitely normally the interviewer here, but what is one thing you learned from this game that you hope to implement in your next game? If I play a melee-centric army, I need to be wholly aggressive. True. I was timid in a few places. I kept uh, models back. Mm -hmm. Even though, like, Drago and I went, you know, toe-to-toe -to -toe -toe -toe, for a long time. Our, our warlords, my stalker and his Drago, were just like, <laughs> and it was really interesting. But, um, you know, again, but with everything else, if I had been a whole lot more aggressive, mm -hmm. I think that even with your ability to move three dudes around each turn, I could have done enough damage in order to kind of mitigate. Absolutely. And at least get them in engagement range where I right. can no longer do that. Right. So. Right. So, Yeah. Aggression with an aggressive army. Who would have thunk? I, I think that's 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 a very fair and wise assessment, sir. No. So, 
All right, well, uh, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you so much, Toto, for coming on again. And for the game. That was just a lot of fun. It was, it was a delight. And I look forward to the rematch as well. Good game, sir. Good game. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.